Hello everyone, I am on here to talk to you guys about one of our affiliates, Culture of Life 1972. Culture of Life 1972 started in 2019 with a vision to design a fashion brand that celebrated all life. They care about the impact that style has on future generations. One by one, they are leading a fashion movement that protects and values life. It's simple, fashion should be good for you. You can head over to their website, col 1972.com and use our code those other girls 1972 to get 10% off of all of your purchases. They have cute clothes, jewelry and accessories available for everyone. All right, you guys, thanks so much. To teach them about healthy and unhealthy relationships. It's important to teach them anatomically correct names for their body parts. It's important to teach them healthy boundaries. So all of the things that, you know, we grew up with as kids, those all still apply. Those are absolutely conversations that need to happen. There's just a more expansive list now of the conversations that need to be had. Can't relate to cancel culture, hookup culture, or victim culture? (laughs) Well, neither could we. We created this platform for those other girls, girls like us who want to give a different perspective from a Christian and conservative worldview. We talk about life, work, relationships, and everything in between. Let's be those other girls that don't just talk about culture, but change culture and bring back traditional values. views expressed on this podcast are our own and do not reflect our employers. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Those Are the Girls with Mallory and Friends. I'm Mallory. I'm Victoria. And we are changing culture and bringing back traditional values. Today's episode um, is really special. I'm very excited. Uh, We have Christy from Safe House Project, and she is going to talk to us a little bit about her um what it is and all this stuff uh Vic can you read her bio yep uh Christy is a co-founder and has served as the chief executive officer of safe house project for three years prior to safe house project Christy spent 12 years in marketing and advertising with Gannett Co and Tribune Media Christy has a bachelor's on of journalism from Texas Christian University she's a military spouse mother of three and an ardent defender of the vulnerable Welcome, welcome, Christy. Yeah, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, so the first question, I think, is what everyone wants to know that's going to listen to this episode, is what exactly is Safe House Project? <laughs> yeah, Safe House Project is a national organization that combats um, trafficking in America through education Uh, We work to increase victim identification through education, and we work to increase the number of safe homes for those who are escaping their trafficking situation. And we also help survivors in their escape and help get them into emergency placements. Okay. Um, And how did, oh, Vic, were you going to say something? No, I was just wondering how many safe houses you guys have currently. So we don't own and operate the safe homes. We um, help launch them through funding and through mentorship. Mm -hmm. So um, to contextualize this a little bit, um, when we began uh, 
in 2017, so almost four years ago now, uh, there, the problem that we saw was that there were 300,000 American kids trafficked in the United States every year. Wow. Uh, 40% of those are trafficked by a family member. Uh, 66% total are trafficked by somebody that they know and trust. Hmm. So we saw 300,000 kids that are trafficked. And but then we quick, saw that, sorry, when you say kids, like what's the age? Well, average age of entry into sex trafficking is 12 years old. Oh we God. anecdotally, we see this as young as three. Oh. Um, we see infants, um, oh I'd God. say a lot of times it can begin at six years old. So it's, um, you know, the, the rate that they're tracking it, they're saying 12 years old, but I know for fact that it goes younger. Um, I work yeah. with those survivors. Um, but you deal with like kids under 18 or all ages, uh, those under 18. And then we also work with those who are over the age of 18. Okay. Um, but we saw 300,000 kids that were being trafficked every year, but victim identification of those kiddos was only at 1%. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason we work to increase victim identification through education. But then without a safe place to go, once that 1% escapes or is rescued, then 80% would end up back in traffickers hands. So what we saw was that we were only effectively rescuing 20% of 1% because they didn't have a safe place to go. And when we began in 2017, there were only a hundred beds in safe homes across the United States for minors. That was it. Wow. A hundred, a hundred. And so our organization through funding and mentorship has helped launch 176 beds. And today we began making calls to our 2021 grant recipients that is going to help us open 50 more beds for kids, 32 more beds for women, six beds for men, which will be the first beds for men in the United States and fund um, a position that's going to help us get six more emergency homes open this year. So 176 beds to date, and then adding another 88 by December. Wow. Wow. I want to touch on something. You said 1% of is it kids that are victim? Is it victim identification? Victim identification of the of those who are trafficked is only okay. at 1%. And what does that mean, victim identification? So we are only effectively spotting mm-hmm. and helping rescue or helping them exit 1% of trafficking victims. Okay. Oh, wow. And wow. that means that, and the reason that is happening is because people don't know what to look for. Mm-hmm. They don't know how to identify trafficking. I was on a phone, the phone with a healthcare worker yesterday. Um, I have a trafficking victim in her hospital and was trying to explain a couple of things to her. And I said, please understand this woman is a trafficking victim. And she goes, no, I don't know about that. She doesn't look like she's been shackled. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. Because for the listeners, the thing that's important to know is that sex trafficking doesn't mean moving a person. A lot of people see the, you know, quite honestly, sensationalized images of somebody Mm -hmm. in shackles, somebody Mm -hmm. held in the basement. And while yes, those things can happen. um, That's not the most common way that it happens. Sex trafficking is simply the commercial sexual exploitation of an individual through force, 
fraud or coercion. But if a child is being sold for commercial sex, which is prostitution or pornography, then it is considered sex trafficking. And so a decade ago, you think that everybody was handed a personal recording device in the form of a cell phone. And those things that were child sexual abuse that were unfortunately always happening began to be recorded and distributed and sold online as child pornography. That child is a child trafficking victim. Um, So oftentimes they are forced into sexual acts with other people and then that is filmed and distributed and that's pornography or that's um, sex trafficking. Can we talk a little bit about, um, just go to misconceptions really quick. Mm -hmm. I know that the last couple of years, especially the beginning of, I wanna say last year, it was very sensationalized um, human trafficking. And, you know, you talk to anybody, um, any woman now, it's always sharing, be careful, someone can grab you. And I'm not saying that it's not going to happen. But what you one of the things that I noticed you said earlier is 66% of children are trafficked by people they know. So that mm-hmm. means more people that children know are trafficking them as opposed to strangers. So could you just talk a little bit about misconceptions really quick and about how the sense of like, um, sensualization I'm not saying sensationalism yeah (laughs) yeah you you know what I'm trying to say how that has like impacted um your work yeah it's um it's made a really negative impact on our work um one common misconception is that somebody is going to get kidnapped now again it happens um I have a trafficking victim um we call them survivors Uh, I have a survivor that we helped escape um two weeks ago And I've built a really good relationship with her and have been walking alongside her every day since then and talked to her about her story the other day. And I said, you know, what happened? Um, Because I know that she's been trafficked for 25 years. She's 39 now. Mm. She was kidnapped when she was 13 before trafficking was ever even outlawed in the United States. Trafficking didn't become illegal until 2000. She was kidnapped. She was kidnapped in 1996. And so she has, so yes, trafficking can be, um, can begin with an abduction, but only 4% of trafficking begins with abduction. So right now, especially it's beginning with those, um, I'll say unsafe people in somebody's world. It's uh, parents, like I said, 40% of child trafficking victims are being sold by a family member, Mm -hmm. Um, but 66% in total by somebody that they know and trust. And so what happens oftentimes is that you um, begin with sometimes, um, sometimes it's another family member, um, or sometimes it's a love interest or a friend or a peer. So one of the common things that happens is um, grooming. in in what we call a boyfriending scenario. So think of a, you know, think of 13 year old you or 12 year old you having the access to the internet and um, social media and all of those things that kids have today. Kids get on there, girls are posting pictures of themselves, just looking for attention Mm -hmm. and somebody will find them. Um, Trafficker will find them, reach out to them, begin grooming them, begin building a relationship with them. you know, convincing them that they are somebody that they know, that they trust, that, that loves them, that is somebody that's going to build their world. Um, And they kind of begin building this circle around them, kind of isolating the survivor, 
uh, pretending to be their boyfriend. They'll send them expensive gifts and convince the girl that, you know, she's going to run away to be with this boy because nobody else in her world understands her. And on the other side of that isn't a Romeo peer. It's a, you know, the person she runs away to is, you know, a 42 year old creepy guy, um, Mm -hmm. who can, would then begin selling her. Um, she's too afraid or too ashamed to go back to her family. So we see this um, scenario happen a lot. So a lot of times parents will look at a child who has run away with an older boy and they think, oh, well, she's, she's a runaway now. We'll oftentimes know that child's being trafficked. Hmm. I want to go back real quick. Um, Cause you said people just don't know what to look for human trafficking. Mm-hmm. What are some telltale signs you can give our listeners of, okay, this is what you need to be looking for. Well, I'm going to do one better. Instead of giving you a checklist of things to look for, there is a tool that I want, or training I want everybody to take. It's a free video-based training. When you go to IamOnWatch.org, and this is a one-hour video-based training, I recommend every single person in a community takes it. Because so many people right now think, oh, this doesn't touch me. This doesn't intersect my world. You would be surprised. Um, This is for anybody who is a parent, anybody who engages at a school, anybody who's around kids or a youth leader, um, or even teens themselves. I encourage you to take it because it is um, a one-hour training. It's 10 five-minute modules designed to teach you how to spot, report, and prevent trafficking. And it's done with a variety of different types of trafficking, different ways girls um, or boys got into it, different ways that the predator originally engaged with them. Um, And it's each of these is done from a real life story that a survivor shared. And they didn't share the horrific things that happened behind closed doors, but they shared about their intersection points with community members and how if they had seen something, they could have been able to stop it. And so they, it's got the survivor story and it's got the industry expert breakdown of, you know, if you don't know what you're looking for, then here's probably the misconception that you thought you were looking at. But if you do know, here's what you could have seen. Mm. It is incredibly impactful. It's one hour of your time. And I always tell people, don't tell me that you care about this issue and not be willing to take a one hour training. Um, because it is, um, it is absolutely the best thing that you can do. That's good. I am on watch.org. Okay. And we'll add that to our show notes. Yeah. Um, you have kids, you have three kids and you kind of touched on this a little bit with the training, but what advice would you tell parents to protect their kids? Absolutely. Um, I would say we do have parent resource guides that are on, on watch. Um, I will say that, you know, all of us were raised probably with the word stranger danger, right? Watch out Mm -hmm. for the creepy man in the white van down the street. Mm -hmm. But the reality is predators are coming into our home without ever, without ever walking through our front door because they're coming in through social media. Mm -hmm. And we are teaching kids to be cautious outside. Parents won't let their kids out sometimes to run through the neighborhood, but they're not monitoring what they're doing online. And during COVID, online recruitment 
by traffickers increased 96%. Wow. Wow. Kids were online and parents were not watching what was happening. And so the number of instances and child pornography and all of those things that have increased is monumental. We've got teens that think they're cute, that they're going to become a cam girl and they end up being trafficked or they've got somebody who's appealed to them that say, you need to be a model. And they think they need to help with money for their family. And so they're selling themselves through commercial sex acts that are being done through only fans and parents have no idea. They're not watching. And so I would say first and foremost, um, know how to have conversations with your kids. Um, the average or the, um, I think it's 10% of pornography consumed on Pornhub is done by kids age 10 years and younger. Oh my! Because God. those are things that are being presented to kids early. And that is a I mean, honestly, it's a grooming tactic for, um, child predators. So we've got kids who are forcing peers or blackmailing peers into sex acts who've never been touched by an adult, but they're seeing pornography and then they're blackmailing their peers into performing sex acts. And so be mindful of what goes into your kids' minds. Um, there is a phenomenal a resource out there and I'm going to pull up her name. Um, uh, cause I want to tell you this exact website. Cause that's a phenomenal question. Um, defend young minds.com. Okay. Phenomenal resource about creating healthy habits online for your kids, protecting them against seeing pornography, Um, Another tool I really recommend for parents is something called Bark. And Bark is a tool that helps, um, instead of parents spot checking their kids' phones to see if they're doing something that they shouldn't, this is an incredible app that can be downloaded onto computers, onto devices, to see where kids might gain access um, to not just um, sexual content, but also it warns against violence, bullying, language. And so it's a great way to just put um, put a protective shield around your kids to make sure that they don't see things that they don't intend to see. I mean, we know that the internet today, things come at kids fast paced and it's not anything that they ever intended to look at. So Defend Young Minds is great. Um, Bark is great um, at really being you know, proactive, protective tools for parents. I think, um, so we've had Landon Starbucks on, um, on here before. I don't know if you know who she is. She, um, does human trafficking work as well. And her husband is running for state house in, uh, Tennessee. And she Mm -hmm. had mentioned Bark before, and she talked a lot about social media and, um, about the internet. And I think like, that's probably the biggest lesson for anyone listening, anyone who is a parent, anyone that wants to be a parent one day, anyone that loves someone under the age of 18 is to monitor internet access. That is probably the biggest lesson out of all of this, the best way to protect your children, your children's children, your neighbor's kids. I mean, I guess you can't probably affect your neighbor's kids, but like your nieces and nephews is mm-hmm. internet access, man. Absolutely. Chris, and it, is there, I mean, sorry, go ahead. 
it is still important to teach them about healthy and unhealthy relationships. It's important to teach them anatomically correct names for their body parts. It's important to teach them healthy boundaries. So all of the things that, you know, we grew up with as kids, those all still apply. Those are absolutely conversations that need to happen. There's just a more expansive list now of the conversations that need to be had. Are there any tactics you and your family use to monitor your kids' um, internet use? Yep. Both of those tools that I just talked about um, are things that we use in our family. Bark is on all of our devices and um, and it's honestly been a godsend. Um, it was it's something I wish I had started using earlier uh, because of how much stuff just comes at your kids, again, that they don't ever look up on their own. Um, or it keeps you from, you know, neighbor's kids from coming on and looking things up on your kids' iPads and being able to pull up something. Mm-hmm. Um, so Bark is something we use and then Defend Young Minds. Um, I was actually reading the Good Pictures, Bad Pictures book with my daughter today, and she thought it was the greatest thing. Um, but it's teaching your, it's, it's porn proofing your kids. It's teaching them that it's not acceptable for um, them to take pictures of their naked body parts. It's not acceptable for somebody to show them pictures of naked body parts. It's not acceptable for somebody to take pictures of them. It's, I mean, things that unfortunately you have to teach your kids at an early age. I was talking to um, the author of this book the other day, and she said, you know, a friend of mine called just horrified. She said they had a a house that they, they rented out their bottom basement and they were remodeling some stuff on the top floor. So they'd moved some of their kids toys down just to the, um, just to the stairs in the basement for a little bit. They had some friends over and told the kids, they said, Hey, you can run downstairs and you can grab one of the toys, just go grab it and then come up. Well, when their son went down, the man living in their basement came to him very quickly, pulls up his phone, shows him gay porn and says, this is really fun to do. We should do this sometime. The kid came straight up to his parents and told him what happened. But I mean, can you imagine if that kid wasn't protected, if he didn't know what he was looking at, if this, I mean, that's a was a grooming tactic of a predator. And so teaching kids these things is so important. Yeah. Good picture, bad picture. I have heard of, I don't have any Mm -hmm. kids. I'm not married, um, but I have heard of that. And Mm -hmm. I really, uh, anyone listening, I just want to echo that is a really good book. And I think to what you said too, is really good. If we don't, I know that like, I'll speak for my generation. I feel like our parents, Christian parents specifically I feel like our parents were kind of nervous to talk to us about this stuff because mm-hmm. honestly I didn't even really know what porn or any of that stuff was until I went to college like mm-hmm. I think our parents were just too nervous to talk to us about that stuff so but nowadays like you can't you just have to suck it up and be like well no this is hey. create so if he didn't know what is a good picture and what's a bad picture he, it would just be oh that's interesting especially coming from an adult because that's the other aspect I was thinking I know as a kid any adult told me anything I was like yes ma'am no ma'am mm-hmm. yes sir no, I didn't even right. question I was like oh that's an adult wow right. that's crazy right. yeah what? and good pictures bad pictures is done by Kristen Jensen that is so the resource I gave of defend young minds that is um kind of the overarching umbrella for um, 
good pictures, bad pictures. So there's other internet tools. There's kind of in that same vein, just really good, really proactive. What age did you start teaching your kids about this? Oh, good question. Five. Five. Wow. Mm-hmm. And I would have done it sooner if I thought about it. So oh, you wow. like what? Okay. So then what age would you recommend people start talking to their kids? Three. Three. Wow. Wow. Yep. I feel like that's young, but I that's when you should. That's definitely. Right. And, and it scales. Like they're, the good picture, bad pictures is definitely for younger kids. It's, you know, I read it with my eight-year-old today. Then they've got next steps up in books. So definitely a great resource. Okay. So transitioning a little bit, um, and I don't know if you know too much about this aspect, but I kind of want to talk about like legality of everything. Um, do you know what was the delay in making human trafficking illegal? Because you had mentioned that it wasn't until um, 2000. Like what happened that people, do you know why it took, you would think that when they were creating laws, because I'm sure, you know, as they say, like prostitution, human trafficking is the oldest profession there ever was or something like that. That's the thing. What took so long? Um, I have a couple of answers to that. One's politically correct and one's not. So I'll go with the one that is. Um, (laughs) You can do not politically correct as well if you want. Um, The fact of the matter is it's, um, it took a while for them to put a name to it you know, human trafficking, um, the commercial sale of an individual. Yes. It's been happening for a long time, but oftentimes it's been mislabeled, you know, Mm. children who were, you know, sexually abused by family members and then sold to somebody else. Well, that was still being labeled in the court system as child sexual abuse. It wasn't, being labeled as trafficking, even still today in some states, it's labeled as trafficking. Um, there were states that would always, and there still are, states that see the victim as the perpetrator. So oh, wow. there are still states that will arrest a 14-year-old for prostitution and charge her with prostitution. Mm. Wow. And so, so long as they put the blame on them and think that they are making a conscious decision, then they're never going to advance in combating human trafficking because you've always got the person who is the victim as now being told that they're the perpetrator. And so the, um, now with human trafficking laws, it's saying it is the commercial sale of an individual through force, fraud, or coercion. So now those who have been hit with prostitution charges are able to show that what was happening to them was as a result of force, fraud, or coercion. And there are some states that are going through and wiping um, prostitution charges off of records. But it's just, it's been mislabeled. It's been mishandled. It's, um, but the reality is those who are in office have to care about this issue. And the top three human trafficking events in the United States are the Super Bowl, the RNC, and the DNC. So the reason we're not advancing, in my opinion, as fast as we can is because we have people in office who are buying women for sex and they want to believe that 
some of them are escorts or are prostitutes and that they are making active decisions to be part of that. But the second that they labeled them as a trafficking victim, then they, um, they are at fault. Wow. Wow. I knew the Super Bowl. I knew sporting events for sure. Mm-hmm. I did not know the RNC and the DNC. Wow. Yep. And that speaks volumes. Yeah, exactly. That speaks volumes. Um, wow. So in North Carolina, um, cause that's where we're all based out of. Sure. Are there, do you know of any laws or anything in the works that those of us in North Carolina should be calling our senators about? or anything like that is there anything or house reps or house reps or should we be protesting somewhere like do you know anything um they are uh, north carolina is i would say a good bit behind in a lot of ways um in terms of laws um they are working hard. I will say Charlotte Mecklenburg PD is a very well-trained police force in identifying trafficking where North Carolina is not going to make any advancement in combating this. I was talking to the mayor about Charlotte, about this the other day where, um, where they're not going to make any advancement is the fact that, um, right now the organizations are very splintered. They're very under-resourced. Um, there's a lot of, um, disunity um, distrust in the human tra- anti-trafficking space in Charlotte Mecklenburg. Yeah, I can see. I that. would that area, and part of the way, and part of that comes down to everybody's got to scrounge for dollars, and they're having to scrounge for dollars, and that's making their them competitive. But the reason they're having to do it is because the state support isn't there. So I'll put it this way. Um, if you think of, we're getting ready to see the first home for minors open in North Carolina. Actually, there was a home for minors open, but there, um, there were some, I'll call them administrative problems on the North Carolina government side that led to that home closing. So we have a new home for minors that's getting ready to open and we're working with them to raise dollars, but The kiddos that they take are coming out of Department of Children and Family Services. So um, if you think of a foster care kid, when they get placed into a foster care home, that foster care family receives a per diem, a daily rate um, of pay to take care of that child and give them the services that they need. However, uh, and that's that's great. Um, And so DCFS, if a safe home is contracted with the state, DCFS pays that safe home, that per diem rate. Um, Michigan is $600 a day. Fantastic. The kids can get the services that they need. Illinois, about $500 a day. Uh, California, $450. North Carolina is $122. Oh, wow. So these programs, believe in looking to serve minors, don't even have the ability to be sustainable and keep their doors open because they don't have the public-private partnership that needs to be there to create sustainability. So these are some of the problems that we see. Um, Those are long-tail solutions. So there is not a bill on the table. I am moving to North Carolina in the next year, and I intend to pound down doors until I can find a congressional member 
who will drive that forward because it has to be done in order to create sustainability of programs and quality of care for survivors. When we get off the call, I think we know someone, two people maybe that could possibly help with that. Maybe. Awesome. I, yes, we can guide you after the call. Yeah, after the call, (laughs) after the call. Um, So I just, wow. Like, no offense to California, but even California provides more than North Carolina. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Um, So, okay. So essentially we, we, as in like the community need to come together and funding. It sounds like our biggest issue right now, at least to help with housing is funding. I would say that that's absolutely a big issue um, okay. and the way the community can come together. One thing is that we do have our gala at Quail Hollow on October 23rd. So if people feel yes. so inclined to um, come and donate and um, really raise the support, then that would be a phenomenal way that people can support. One thing is that, um, you know, the program's I would say it's not even just funding any program. It's making sure that quality programs are funded. Uh, Safe yes. House Project is the national certifier of safe homes to ensure that they are meeting best practices. Um, and those are best practices that have been created by the industry. And so programs have to go through a certification process with us where we evaluate them and very in-depth to understand all the different elements of their program. Because while the rise of this issue um, has been great because it, or rise of awareness of this issue has been great because it's created an influx of people into the anti-trafficking industry. I will say that there is a difference between a good heart and good programming. And so the services that survivors need um, are very specific. And so a lot of times we've end up with people with a good heart who basically wanna open a safe home out of their basement and they're not giving the survivors the support that they need. And so we work to elevate the national standard of care through evaluating and certifying programs. So um, that is something that there are a couple of programs in North Carolina that are in the process of getting certified. So that's awesome um, because we wanna see more programs like that. Um, So it's important, especially for donors to know that their dollars are going to quality programming. And that's um, been something that we've, you know, for us as a funder, a lot of this began with our vetting criteria to make sure that we were spending or putting donor dollars into effective programs. But we realized that that's not a standard for us to hold secret. That's a standard for us to make public to donors, to government entities who are pushing out federal dollars, state dollars to make sure that the right programs are getting supported. So last, uh, last two questions really quick. Um, what, can you just tell us like a few things, why recovery is so important? You mentioned a little bit, a few statistics. Can you repeat those statistics and maybe talk a little bit about why recovery is so important? Like, why are you guys so um, crucial to helping people? Well, not just why it's important, but also like what methods, Mm or I guess like what, what makes an effective recovery? Yes. Process. Absolutely. Well, I think that the why of it is important and that's without a safe place to go once somebody is rescued or once they exit their trafficking situation 
80% will end up back in traffickers' hands. We see this more times than I even care to talk about. Um, Law enforcement will go in, they'll bust on doors, they'll help somebody escape. Two days later, they're like, I don't know. We don't, we don't know where to put them. We don't know who's going to help them. We don't, I, I don't know. There's a social worker, but they're not calling him back. And the girl's like, the, really? Because the traffickers tell them, if you leave, nobody's going to help you. Nobody's going to believe you. You're going to, you know, you're not going to have any, any help. And so the girls end up back in traffickers hands, maybe not the same trafficker, but, um, I mean, that's just such a huge number. So restorative care is essential to break a cycle of victimization. And the safe homes that we support are across what we'll call a continuum of care, which means, you know, healing isn't linear. It doesn't happen all at once. It doesn't happen um, in some magical chronological order. It is variable for everybody, but when somebody escapes, they would have the potential to go into an emergency home, or this is really what we're working towards is having, is letting everybody have this opportunity. An emergency home that has very few barriers for accepting somebody, it allows us to get them into a home that understands trauma, that understands trafficking, can keep them safe, get them the medical care that they need, help them get on Medicaid um, or whatever insurance is needed for them to get the medical services that they need to help them identify, you know, who they are, what was their last point of education? What do they want to do? Um, I've been in the process of doing this with somebody for the last two weeks, um, that we helped escape and she's been getting medical care and I've been working with the safe home and with her, um, really closely to say, you know, you've been trafficked for 25 years. Mm. What do you want to do? And she said, I had a dream when I was younger, but I'm afraid that that time is gone. I said, well, what was it? She said, I wanted to be a doctor. This girl is smart as a whip, just brilliant when it comes to anything medical. I said, okay, that's great. So right now she's in an emergency program, but we're getting her into a long-term safe house where she's going to be able to receive education and life skills training and therapy. And I mean, just basic life skills, but with that, we're also able to bring alongside a scholarship to a program where she can go get um, a medical degree or not, not, um, not become a doctor, but she can work in, um, as a healthcare worker. And so we're able to bring that alongside and bring her that scholarship so that she can begin a two-year program to come out with a degree that will allow her a sustainable wage to work in healthcare. And that is empowering for a survivor. That is giving them the economic empowerment that allows them to make money and earn a living wage is so critical. Now for our kiddos that go into programs, it's different. It is education. It is life skills training. It is therapy. It's multiple modalities of therapy. So sometimes they're doing equine therapy with horses, or they're doing yoga therapy or art therapy, because most of these kids cannot just sit and talk out their problems. There's, there have to be different ways of almost unlocking the brain, building that confidence. And, um, they're getting education. They're getting usually on-site education from a private tutor, or, um, sometimes the programs will have schools on their, 
uh, facility. But those are all things that are important to just establish a sense of self all over again. And those are the things that we see done that truly do help break that cycle of victimization. And without it, very few ever truly make it out. So, wow. Well, first of all, thank you for what you guys are doing. I think that is, I mean, it's like we said earlier, this topic has become very popular in the recent years for various reasons that could be a whole nother podcast episode. Um, But I really love hearing from people who are actually like doing something about it. They're not just posting about it. They're not just complaining. They're not just, you know, going down rabbit holes. They're actually Mm -hmm. doing something about it. And I just, I, this organization is amazing. I really, really appreciate it. Um, So last question I'm going to ask, we usually, uh, this is something we're asking all of our guests now um, as the last question. If every single girl in the world was looking at you right now and you could tell them one thing, what would you tell them? And it could be about anything. Have the audacity to believe that you can change the world and don't let anybody tell you different because it is only with audacious goals audacious beliefs that will try. The best thing that my parents ever gave me was the mindset that I could do anything I put my mind to. And I mean, truly the audacious belief that I could change the world. And so I think that that is um, desperately needed. The other thing is For me, from a faith perspective, I can say, um, always have vision beyond your resources and press into what God has for you. Because if it's a God-sized vision, it's going to mean God has to show up in a big way. And this whole organization has been built and carried um, by God. I mean, it's, we have constantly have goals that people say, that's too big, dream smaller. That's too, I mean, us launching a national organization when we had three husbands deployed and seven children under the age of seven was insane. And everybody said, you you should think local, you should think smaller. And we said, no, that's not the vision that God gave us. And so we have constantly gone after the big things and it's not because of what we know we can do. It's because we, um, a pray long and hard about it and B um, know that when we go after those things, then it's not, um, it's not us that gets the credit. It's God that gets the glory. And for us, that's really um, exciting to see. That's beautiful. Um, I know Mouse, that was the last question, but I have one more. What mm-hmm. led you guys to start safe house? You said that you were three wives, moms, husbands were deployed, seven kids. What was like the situation that was like, we have to do this? Well, all of us had seen trafficking in various ways. I had seen it 16 years old on a missions trip in Costa Rica with Charlotte Christian. Um, My co-founder, one of my co-founders had seen it in Atlanta. One of my co-founders had seen it um, outside of Reno, Nevada. Um, and lived down the street from the madam of the brothels that were recruiting out of high schools. And, 
Um, all of us had seen it in various capacity, but a friend of mine who is a Christian hip hop artist had gone to South Africa and seen a need to develop a safe house to protect girls that were at risk of trafficking there. And he came back hard on fire. He'd seen something he couldn't unsee. And I knew that feeling and he had a fire in his belly. And I said, I'm, I'm in. And so we started helping him raise money, uh, through this album for the safe house in South Africa. And we got that built. But as people um, started to come alongside to support that, they started to say, what are you going to do here? And I will say for myself, um, not my co-founders, but definitely myself, I was really ignorant on what trafficking looked like here. And so I didn't have an answer for it. And that's when we really became students of the industry to understand the problem. And that's when we realized that 300,000 American kids are trafficked. 1% of victims are identified without a safe place to go. 80% end up back in traffickers' hands. And there were 100 beds in America. And all of us came from varying corporate America backgrounds and knew that we were not in a position to launch a safe house. You know, we, none of us had social work backgrounds. None of us had, um, none of us live anywhere longer than two, three years. So that just didn't, didn't seem reasonable, but we all knew, um, the connections that we had. I've been very fortunate to be raised around some of the top CEOs in the world, my entire life. I knew that I had the ability to get into doors immediately that it would take other people a decade to knock down. And so I said, we're going to go after corporate America as a funding source. We're going to raise dollars at a national level and push them down to a local level to those doing the work to get more beds open. And that's what we've done. Awesome. That's beautiful. I love, Oh, I'm so encouraged. And, uh, well, Vic, were you going to say something? I was just going to thank her for coming on such an inspiring story and so much sad, but needed and good information for us and our audience to like, come back to this and make sure like no child or human in that manner is ever trafficked again absolutely yeah. and I was gonna say like I really really appreciate you coming on as well I appreciate um just learning from it from someone who is trying to do something and honestly you have been very inspiring I'm sure everyone else um listening is inspired to to do something what uh can you tell us like the social media website and then talk a little bit about the gala like if someone wants to get a ticket for the gala really quick yeah. Um, social media handles. You can find us, um, at safe house project. You can find us on our website at safehouseproject.org. And if you do go to our website, um, you can see where it says, uh, uh, get involved. Um, and that's where you can, um, uh, click there and you can get a ticket to our gala. And if you want to donate, you can donate there as well, right? Yes. Yes, everyone. So as we always say, we are just not just women who want to change culture. We're women who take action to change culture. So I think this was like a very, we have some good actionable steps. I, we're going to link the website she mentioned, and we'll probably just do a blog post as well and mm-hmm. link all of her socials and things like that. Um, but yeah, everyone, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, pl- well, first of all, make sure you share this episode. I think this is definitely one that you can share with anyone. Wasn't political at all. We were talking about something that like 
everyone can do something with this. This is something non-controversial that we can all help and be active in. So make sure you share this with all your friends, families, neighbors. Also, um, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe, like, comment, um, all the things. We really appreciate it. And everyone have a good rest of your day. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to Those Other Girls with Mallory and Bailey. Make sure you like, comment, and subscribe on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Head over to our website, thoseothergirls.com, to read our blogs and receive exclusive content. And connect with us on Instagram, at Those Other Girls Podcast, and on Twitter, at TOG underscore podcast. Those Other Girls, changing culture and bringing back traditional values.